Welcome to Latte with a Lawyer, a podcast dedicated to bringing you the stories of some of America's most successful lawyers, figuring out what makes them tick, how they creatively solve problems, and how others aspiring to be them can follow in their footsteps. Okay, folks, uh, welcome to another episode of Latte with a Lawyer. Um, I'm your host, Jonathan Brickman, and it's still the morning. We have uh, with us from Abrams Fenster and Carolyn I'm going to pronounce you Reinach. Reinach Wolf. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. Thank good. you. Nice to have you. Um, so it's still morning. So uh, we have to ask you, what's your favorite beverage of choice to get started in the morning? I'm probably like most people around the world. Coffee. Okay. You know, it's funny. I, you know, I, I said to someone in the, la- the last episode, I said, uh, I need to start keeping a database because it's quite a range of what people have. It's not just coffee, actually. A lot of people don't drink coffee. They drink water. They drink Sweden tea. I mean, you name it, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, I start with coffee, but I actually switch to tea for the rest of the day. Otherwise, I'd be bouncing around my office endlessly for the yeah, rest yeah, of the yeah. day. Yeah, the coffee doesn't really, it doesn't seem to affect me. Maybe I'm kidding myself, but it doesn't seem to, it's more psychological than anything, part of the routine. But uh, anyway, you're talking to a mental health lawyer. So no, I, know. I know, I know. We're going to have a, we're going to, we're going to have maybe a, a therapy session here. I don't know. Mm. Um, but anyway, so yeah, tell, tell us about the kind of work that you do. Um, well, I, my, area of practice, my mental health law practice, we do a variety of different subspecialties within the mental health law practice. Um, We represent hospitals doing commitment hearings, we do guardianships, we do discrimination cases. Um, One of my partners does criminal mental health cases. My particular niche is pretty much exclusively working with families who have seriously mentally ill family members, um, substance use disorder, um, sometimes medical issues, traumatic brain injuries that result in psychiatric symptoms um, to help them navigate through the very complicated and not always very supportive mental health system, healthcare system. I'm actually a hospital administrator, hospital risk manager by background before I went to law school. So I have a pretty broad knowledge of the healthcare system as a whole. And I bring that to my practice and to my clients to help them understand the the landscape and ultimately come up with a roadmap or a plan in order to help their loved one get into treatment, stay in treatment, become more stable, um, bring in supportive services that might be helpful and supportive for the families. Um, and, you know, move forward from there. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, so how long were you a hospital administrator? I was a hospital administrator, I guess, about four years. And okay. um, then I left the job that I actually really loved um, to go to law school because oh. I would wanted to be a lawyer, I think, since I was five years old and was just too intimidated by the idea. Um, so it was kind of at a, I was at a crossroads. I didn't have kids yet. And it was something I wanted to do as a hospital risk manager. I worked a lot with outside counsel for the city hospital that I work for. 
And so I applied to law school and I thought, well, if I get in great, if I don't, I have a whole career that I really enjoy. Um, and they called my bluff and they accepted me to law school. And so, um, but I knew I wanted to stay in the healthcare system because that was really my great love and my background. So, so is there, yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, my older brother's actually uh, been a CEO of uh, healthcare systems for his whole adult life. And uh, so I, I understand that, um, that ecosystem there. I mean, so you said you wanted to be a lawyer. Why? Where did that come from? I'm not sure. Maybe because I was very chatty and good at debating. Um, and I always had a strong sense of justice and of fairness and of doing the right thing. My dad actually lost his family during the Holocaust. So I grew up having a parent, you know, who very much understood prejudice, understood injustice, understood, um, you know, tragedy in large yeah, part. And yeah. so I think some of it was that. Um, as well as just, it always interested me. I grew up with my grandparents living underneath us and I would watch Perry Mason with them almost every night. So yeah, I think yeah. it was a combination of, of all those things that oh, for me. Where'd you grow up in practice. New York City? Yeah, born and raised Upper East Side of New York. Oh, Upper East Side, we're, we're on the Upper East Side. Um, 77th Street between first and second. Ah, very good. And I went to public school my whole schooling career, um, learned a lot. I had friends who lived in the city projects and whose parents were on welfare. And I had friends who lived on Park Avenue and had maids and butlers. So, and everybody in between, including me. So I had a, a good perspective on, you know, pretty much the whole spectrum of the world, I guess. And yeah, people. yeah. Absolutely, New York City. One, one of my brothers lives on the east side of New York. That's what I was curious. Not far from where you are. Mm. Um, we're Bostonians, but we've migrated. Moved uh -huh. um, yeah, well, I, I have a master's from the Harvard School of Public Health. So I, yeah, I saw that for a year yeah. and loved it. It was a lot more easy, a lot easier to manage getting around than New York is. Yes. Although in some ways, New York is pretty easy because it's the transportation. It's a grid, but Boston's confusing. I mean, it's smaller, True. smaller, but. True. Yeah. Anyway, very, very interesting. Um, uh, but so what, what about your family background? I mean, did anyone else, was anyone else a lawyer? Nobody in my family. My dad was a salesman and my mom was a special ed teacher in the public school system. Okay. So, what? no, it's kind of hard to trace why I wanted to do this, but for some reason I did. Got it, got it. Well, I mean, listen, I mean, obviously, I mean, we share the same uh, background, Jewish, but um, yeah, you either want to become a lawyer or a doctor, right? Professional. Right, or an accountant. And <laughs> right. math was never my forte. I break out into a cold sweat when I have to balance my checkbook. So I knew that was out as a career. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. I'm trying to think of the other one. If we you went back and listened to the uh, the shows, there's another one with similar background. Yeah, I'm sure you know who she is um, at at the firm. Uh, where are you in? Where do you live? Um, I live in Manhattan, but the main 
office for the firm is in Lake Success, yeah, New it's York, on the, Long Island. Island. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. Oh, but you, do you go to that office? You work out of your home? Oh, you do? Um, no, I'm, you can see I'm in my office. Yeah. Um, and it's not a bad commute from the Upper East Side to where we are. We're right over the Queens border. Oh, I see. okay. Off most of the major highways, so um, it's not a bad commute. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it doesn't sound like it's an easy commute, but I've been on that road. <laughs> but yeah, it's not fun, but it's <laughs> distance-wise, it's not too bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, LaGuardia is close to New York, but I mean, it could take you who knows how long, depending on the time of yes. the day, right? Yes, for sure. Um, so, so, um, so you mainly work and advocate for the family. Mm-hmm. Um, give me an ex- like, give me an example of a case that you would work on or what was kind of your typical scenario you know i could get a call from a from parents of adult children yeah anywhere from um you know early 20s 30s sometimes 40s who say that their son or daughter has a history of bipolar disorder doesn't have a lot of insight goes off their medication Um, is acting out or exhibiting symptoms and does well on the medication, but just, again, doesn't have any insight and know that they need to take their medication or want to take it. And these medications do have side effects for some people. Um, So I do an initial consultation and I take a full history. And as a hospital risk manager, I learned how to do that, take a full really clinical history as well as legal history. Sometimes they get caught up in the criminal justice system or have issues with their landlords and eviction proceedings, um, other sorts of legal intervention. Sometimes there are matrimonial issues, family law issues. So I take a full history and then I outline for the family members, what are their rights in the system and what are the individual's rights in the system? Um, And then I have what I call my toolkit. I go through what are the options? Should we involuntarily commit their loved one? And how can we go about doing that? Um, From a 911 call to a mental health warrant, depending on what the circumstances are and the specific facts of what's going on. Um, Do we need to bring in a psychiatric case manager? And I have a couple I work with who are wonderful. Do we need to get an order of protection? Do we need to bring a guardianship proceeding? Do we need to um, get a mental health warrant to try and get them hospitalized? So I go through what are all the options in the system in which I work and that I'm familiar with. And then ultimately the goal is to come up with a roadmap or a plan. Let's start with this and move to that. Maybe we get them hospitalized. Then I work with the family on a, on a discharge plan so that when they leave the hospital, they're in an outpatient program and we can make a referral. They go to see a private psychiatrist. Um, maybe we need a guardianship petition at that point because they can't manage their life affairs or make decisions about where to live and how to manage money, um, especially people with very large sums of monies. Mm. Um, that can be a problem and does become a problem for the family. So maybe we need a guardianship and somebody to protect that and manage that. Um, And 
So that's basically how my consult ends. And then it depends on which track we're gonna take in order to get help for the family and for the person who has the illness. I mean, the way you're describing sounds more like, you know, case manager as opposed to like legal ease kind of stuff. So are you drafting? So tell me about the legal side of it. Well, for example, a mental health warrant. Yeah. You know, we draft the papers. We ask the judge to issue a warrant. It's a civil warrant. People don't get arrested. They don't go to jail. Um, they're brought by the sheriff's department to the courthouse normal days since COVID many times it's put in front of a camera right. um, they're assigned free legal counsel the judge holds a hearing it's very dramatic and somewhat adversarial because I need the family to be my main witnesses since they have the most firsthand knowledge about the individual mm. um, if the judge is convinced from a legal perspective that we've met our legal criteria which is suffers from a mental illness and poses an imminent risk of harm to self and or others, the judge can issue an order to have the sheriff take the person to a psychiatric emergency room for an evaluation. So it then becomes the hospital's decision as to whether they meet the criteria or should be admitted, but at least we can get somebody to the emergency room with supervision and by court order. Okay. Um, so sometimes that's a better route to take than just having a family show up in the emergency room. Got it. And any of these cases that require litigation? Well, there is a hearing. There, There's you know, it, it's not litigation as you think of in terms of lawsuits. Yeah. But these are full-blown trial court level judges and parts of the court. Um, oh, bench trials where you're going before a judge. Right, basically. So, okay. um, you know, they are full-blown hearings. And, um, you know, so sometimes we do that. There are other cases we have to go to family court sometimes to get orders of protection because somebody could be threatening or acting out in, in a way that is scary to the family. Sometimes it's elderly parents who have their loved ones still living with them, but have some fear of what they might do. Um, most of the time, people who have serious mental illness are not violent, um, and, but there are times, you know, where that's the situation, and so we help families work through yeah. that system. Contrary to what we hear on television. Yes, there's a lot of misinformation out there about serious mental illness, which I work really hard to try and correct that and yeah. give correct information. You know, the majority of people with serious mental illness are the victims more of violence than they are the perpetrators. Right. Yeah, I, I, would, I would think so. I was kind of leading you down that path for my own benefit sorry <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah no it's it's no, true it is i know it's uh anyway a lot of the stuff gets uh hijacked for other reasons right yes yeah. yes um so uh, are you the only one in the firm that is involved in this kind of practice you have others i know you have a family law practice too right mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, we are the mental health law practice within the firm okay we do coordinate often with other areas of law, trusts and estates, the family law, matrimonial law yeah. um, area, 
sometimes employment law issues because we do those types of discrimination cases. Oh, sure. Somebody has a psychiatric diagnosis and there's loss of job or other types of issues. Um, So landlord tenant, sometimes um, we do a fair number of cases um, representing co-op boards or condo boards. They have somebody in the building who's off their medication, acting out. Um, needs an evaluation. They don't want to evict them, but it's really difficult in terms of the rest of the building. So we work with the building to try and get some sort of resolution that can get treatment for the person and get some peace and tranquility for the neighbors. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine how all these things sort of bleed into other Mm -hmm. issues, right, related to that. Right, and it's not just within our firm. I get calls from outside attorneys from other firms, other practices who come and say, this case has some mental health aspect to it. So I end up co-counseling these cases very often or being a consultant or an advisor in the mental health space um, when you know it involves other types of subjects. Got it, got it, got it. Types of cases. Is it increasing, you think, in society, uh, these issues? It seems like it. It has over the 30 plus years that I've been doing this. Um, Certainly COVID made it a big, a big trajectory increase. Oh, it did. Very stressed and anxious. The younger people, the issues of school and not being able to go to school and remote learning and teaching and, and also families who normally would place their family members or help support them to live independently, brought them home because of the pandemic. So they got to see firsthand and right in their faces what they might not see on a daily basis with their loved one living under the same roof. Right. So that's, yeah, there's less of a stigma though. I mean, people are more open about, right? Yeah, no, there's, it is, lessening and I think the more accurate information gets out there the better I work really hard to do programs right I write a blog for psychology today to really give people the right information Um, but you know certainly the media can be helpful but is not always helpful in putting out the difference between somebody who has a serious mental illness and maybe is a sociopath or really a criminal or does these obviously you know mass shootings and you know they sort of mash it all together when that's not always the case and so that feeds the stigma but again you know it's really important to separate out what people's actions may be because there's something else going on and what somebody with a diagnosed serious mental illness, like any other illness, you know, diabetes, heart conditions, whatever else they might have, this is another diagnosis, at least from my perspective. Yeah. Um, But the stigma has kind of separated mental illness or mental health you know, as an illness or a disease from other more, you know, quote unquote, acceptable illnesses. Right. Yeah, no, actually, uh, I, I, someone I uh, was, lived close by in a, when I lived in, in the D.C. area that went through a very serious bout 
was institutionalized and um, without getting into all the details, but um, he came out of that on the other side and actually started a business mm. and make it much more accessible for people to get access instead of the very mm-hmm. expensive institutional approach. And you see yeah, I mean, and that's that. a problem. Funding, yeah. getting money, um, outpatient programs. It's very costly to be an inpatient in a hospital. Yeah. And if you were to, you know, if, if we were to set up better outpatient avenues, better outpatient programs, um, I'm very big on preventive and being proactive. Yeah rather than waiting till it escalates to the point where somebody has to be taken off the street and hospitalized. Sure. So if you had better housing, um, more mental health professionals in the field, better outpatient services, and also a change in the law, that I think is, is problematic too. It's a very high standard in the law to get somebody an intervention, which came about because of the abuses in the system, which really don't exist in the same way as years ago. And also the confidentiality laws, you know, the HIPAA and which is federal and the state confidentiality laws. So I very often have a family who has their loved one living with them. They have a decompensation. They take them to the emergency room. They know they're admitted. And then because the person's mad about being in the hospital says, I don't want you speaking to my family. I don't want you sharing any information. So the family gets shut down, even though they know they're there, they brought them there, they're living and supporting them, and they're going to be the ones to bring them home and have them live with them or support them. And yet they get shut out of the planning. They yeah, because of privacy, right? There's a big right. wall. Yeah, so yeah, there yeah. has to be some compromise, I think, in the law where families can participate, maybe meeting certain criteria. So it's shown that they're there to be supportive and in a positive way. They're not just there because they want ammunition and a divorce down the road or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but families need to be able to know what the course of treatment is, what the discharge plan is, what are the expectations? Is the person willing to take their medication going forward or not? Are we going to go back around the same bend yet again? Um, so that's a real problem, I mm. think, in the system. Yeah. I've, I've, you know, um, talking about uh, the, uh, you said it was less the, I think maybe uh, the, the way people are treated in these facilities, but I, I, I had a call with a plaintiff attorney here that represents uh, people that, have, you know, where I live is like the capital of uh, substance abuse facilities here. I'm in Delray Beach. Oh, sure. So, right? Uh-huh. And... Uh, she does a lot, this, this particular lawyer is like a zealot for it and represents a lot of these uh, patients that are abused badly in the, in these facilities, mm-hmm. sexual assault. But is that a hospital or are these? No, no, no. These are like uh, clinics, right? These are uh, treatment right. facilities. Right. right. So you, you don't get involved with any of that kind of work where people are just. No, we don't you know. do lawsuits. I refer those out. Okay. Okay. Um, And we represent a lot of hospitals in the area and work closely with outpatient mental health centers. But the problem in the addiction world in particular, and these types of programs, 
there's really no oversight. You know, in the hospital world, there's the Joint Commission on Accreditation. So there are criteria and they're surveyed and they're overseen. And so there is some checks and balances to yeah. the treatment of patients and the quality of care. That doesn't happen a lot in the outpatient residential therapeutic world, especially in the substance use disorder world, even okay. more than the mental health programs, because there are some really excellent programs that we refer you know, clients to that do mm. a really great job with serious mental illness, sometimes dual diagnosis. They have you know, substance use disorder issues as well or other issues, um, but there really is no oversight. And so this is, you know, a big money maker. And if nobody's really coming in to make sure they're doing what they profess to do, that's a problem. Yeah, it's, that's uh, surprising to hear that there is no regulation with that. There are, it's very rare. Um, I actually was at a networking meeting yesterday for one of the big centers. Um, it's a substance use disorder program, although they can manage some psychiatric issues yeah. out way out in Long Island. And they are accredited by the Joint Commission. So that okay. means they are overseen and they are looked at and they are surveyed, but that's rare. Mm. That's interesting. That's kind of disappointing to hear that 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 needs to change yeah and families really don't know they're desperate they want to get help sure. for their you know family member the cost is astronomical 30 40 50 60 000 a month and that's why we help our clients to identify the programs we know and refer to and have had good experience with and get feedback from our clients that they had a good experience. My case managers know and have been to and have transported to a lot of these programs. So we have, you know, a referral network that we use, psychiatrists, okay. psychologists, these programs, outpatient programs. Um, so we've sort of done the legwork for the client. Um, but most of the time, you know, families don't know and they're desperate and they're sold a bill of goods. Oh, yes, we can treat this and address that. And, you know, and then they find out that's really not what's happening. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And, and is, is your practice New York Metro? Um, it's New York State because we're all admitted in New York, but I, I get calls from all over the country. Okay. And, you know, I can help guide people through what to look for, what questions to ask, set up a, a system for them. If it requires, you know, a full-blown legal intervention or some sort of legal practice, then I find local counsel to work with because um, I'm only admitted in New York State. Okay, okay, good. All right, well, listen, this is a good sort of segue. So if someone wants to, uh, you know, reach you and learn more about your practice, the best way to Get in touch with you. Um, well, my email is cwolf at abramslaw.com. Um, the website for our firm is abramslaw.com. And it has, you can find us, you know, by going through the website. Yep. Um, it has everybody's credentials and PR that they do and, and information, background, bios, and so on. Um, my office number is 516-592. 5857. Um, I'm always happy to answer questions or 
you know, do an initial intake and see if we can be helpful to families, give them some direction. And, um, you know, but email is probably the best way to find me. Yeah. Excellent. Well, good. It's been, it's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you. I mean, one other thing that I direct families to could act because it actually is a good overview of the practice. The New York Times did an article about my practice. Okay. February 10th of 2013. Um, hard to believe it's almost 10 years later, but yeah. it's called A Guide in the Darkness. Ooh. And I often direct families, you know, to take a look at that. It was front page of the New York Times Metro section. Um, but the reporter did a good job of explaining what we do and the uniqueness of what we do. Oh, good. Well, you, you're doing a you're doing a good service, so appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, I love what I do, and you know, it's it's good work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. All right. Well, listen, it's it's been it's been great to have you once again, uh, Carolyn Wolf from the uh, law firm. You, and everyone shortens it these days. I see that Abrams mm -hmm. Fasterman, but you you say go oh so Abrams Law is the way right the the website. Yeah, it's abramslaw.com. Okay, Thank you. Bit. Thank you for having me. Oh, you bet. And, and this is, by the way, sponsored by Emotion Track, which is a legal tech platform which supports litigators that want to get uh, pre trial insights for mediation and trials. Oh, interesting. So thanks. Thanks again, Carolyn. You're welcome. Thank you. Have a good weekend. All right.